Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge part two. People say I don't do them, but we do them. We do do them. Back from DOA, Joey Shithead Keithley is back on the show. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. He will get the message to me as soon as he can. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Damien. If you want to support the show, you can support it by telling all your friends about it. You can subscribe to it on uh, iTunes and rate it. Thank you to everyone that does that. You can head over to patreon.com. Patreon.com slash Turned Out of Punk. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind support of the fine folks at Van, who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. We want to support you doing it. And they have, and it's been awesome. And I uh, I really hope they keep doing it. Um, and uh, that, that is uh, that. Also, check out FloodMagazine.com slash Punk as Fuck to check out some of the cool videos that I got to make a few years ago in L.A., and uh, word is there might be some more dropping soon. Some real fun stuff over there. My breakfast with Steve Albini and Don Bowles. Hanging out with Jonah Ray. Uh, yeah, check the, check those out. You got a second? Check them out. Floodmagazine.com slash punk as fuck. Or punk AF. Punk as fuck. Punk AF. Punk AF. Whatever. You'll find it. Floodmagazine.com. All right. On to today's show. Today on the show marks the mighty, mighty return of Joey Shithead Keithley. As you may have heard, there is a film in production about him and his his run for office in Burnaby. It's directed by Scott Crawford, who, of course, is the incredible director of Salad Days. He did the Cream documentary, and uh, I can't wait to see this thing. This is definitely a person that is worthy of a documentary, and what a, what a cool thing to watch kind of happen. I can't wait to see this thing kind of come out, and because of it, you know, we, we thought it'd be great to have Joe back on the show because Joey Keithley is someone that is a musician's musician. You know, you've, if you listen to this podcast enough, you've heard DOA's name come up countless times, you know, be it on people from DC's episodes, people from all over the place. You know, this is a band that toured when no one else was touring and really taught, you know, Black Flag had a tour. We, we This has been talked about on the show with other guests. Like they were the band that gave Black Flag, the address book, and and started that exchange with them and built the network, built the network that we're still all using today. Now, Joey was here before, and we had a great conversation, but this is a guy, you know, they're making a movie about him. There's books about this guy. You can talk to this guy forever. He's got stories for days, and trust me, we get into some good ones on this episode. I don't think I got any notes. Uh, Check out DOA. Check out Scott Crawford's films because, you know, you, you'll, you'll be better having done so. You'll be feel better for it, you know? Trust me. I can't make many guarantees in life, but, you know, check out that stuff. And uh, that's it. Uh, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the legend, Joey Keithley, returning to Turned Out a Punk. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, no, no, my my pleasure. Great to talk to you again. 
Well, I, it's an absolute honor to have you back here because, you know, I, uh, you know, we, we only talked for an hour and 15 minutes and, you know, there's a movie that's going to be made about you now because you're worthy of <laughs> many, many hours of conversation and documentation. So we got a lot more work to do, my friend. Yeah, there's uh well, I mean, when you're, when you're around this long, there's a lot of tales to tell, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's funny. I, I just talked to uh, Lauren from the band The Dogs the other day, and you know they're a band yeah. that you know they they kind of like span from sixty eight to to kind of like you know eight seventy nine eighty right yeah, and, and then it's almost like they tell the first chapter of American underground rock or North American underground rock and roll like after the sixties, and you guys kind of tell the second chapter of that because you're a band that starts with punk but goes all the way to today. Yeah, and I think that when you think about bands uh, like that, um, the whole underground scene—I mean, that's where—that's the only thing we knew when mm -hmm. we started. You know, we we heard about Iggy Pop, uh, the Dictators, uh, that whole underground garage scene, MC5, and that's kind of where we started up. And straight, straight, you know, which is kind of more rock and roll, and we sped it up a whole bunch and made DOA uh, songs. And then, boy, we've been through a lot of things. You know, we had the uh, rap came along, and they—they, they, I think they really took a cue from punks because they came up with like funny handles and names and stuff like that, and was like, uh, pro, like it was urban protest music uh, or black protest music, whatever you want to call it, as uh, opposed to punk rock, which is kind of like not totally, but a bit of suburban white protest music in a sense, right? Um, and then they went through a ton of it, like, oh, and uh, like crap in the 90s, like Oasis and stuff like that. Remember them being the big, <laughs> I don't know if you have, if you have personally have a soft spot for that band, but I, I can't stand them. Right? <laughs> I like, the, I like the one song acquiesce by them, but I'm not, I'm not a, definitely not a huge fan, but it's funny. Cause like even that band somehow weirdly traces back to punk in a way. They would definitely be the descendants of that whole the whole Manchester thing or whatever, that was like kind of the, I want to call it post pop post punk or something like that. You know, where they were yeah. you know, more melodic and took a lot of stuff, uh, punk, uh, but also like, you know, from a bunch of the great new wave bands. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and there are a lot of bad new wave bands, but there's some that, you know, kind of, you know, made their mark or like uh, put a lot into style or sound and stuff like that, that got copied later on. And obviously, they were they end up being like a lot more popular in a sense than punk bands were because they they actually got played on the radio as opposed to being banned from the radio like bands like mine, right? So, well, it's funny because like you know you look at England and you you know you look at the the wide kind of display of punk rock like all the different manifestations like yeah. you're talking about like the new wave and all this kind of stuff. It's amazing how that is echoed in Vancouver. You know, it's, it's, it's so small, but yet you've got every possible mutation of yeah. punk rock popping up right away. Like it blows Toronto. Uh, and I, you know, I, I love Toronto and I love Toronto punk rock, obviously, but like yeah. it blows our scene out of the water. It had a lot going on for like, you say like a small town that, um, and it's got, you know, it's gotten noticed guys like Jack rabbit with his magazine, the big takeover, uh, you know, went like this is like uh, he picked up right away. This is a really creative scene that you say uh, the point of six and the Marinettes were pop punk band. Uh, the Dish Rags were kind of one of the like early girl punk band, and uh, they had the DOA and the Subhumans um, for your straight out punk rock. And 
and all it's like experimental stuff like you jerk and the, the generators and you know and, and many other bands too that i didn't mention right but uh it definitely was uh the early shows were really fun because we would get like a new wave band a punk band a reggae band and an experimental band mm-hmm. and then everybody came to the show like the you'd have maybe at first there's 50 people come to the show and this was from using all four kind of types of music. That's all you could get was 50 people. <laughs> they eventually got up to 100, but it was an amalgamation of all these sounds and all the sort of curious people, um, the bon viance, so to speak, uh, came and showed up. And uh, and you just met all sorts of strange people that you know they had no intention of being a punk rocker with a with a mohawk and a studded leather jacket or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. But it was they were everybody was part of the scene. Yeah, and it feels like that, you know, um, and I was, I, last time I talked to you, I actually had all my books packed away, so I didn't even have talk minus action equals zero at hand to yeah. kind of flip through it. But I was flipping through it today, and just like, it's wild, like, you know, like you're playing with 5440, you know, like it, it, that yeah. kind of vibe seems to continue in Vancouver into the 80s. Yeah, it, it carried on for like a long time. Um, I mean, I would say it kind of died by the early 90s, like a lot of the venues changed. The music changed, uh, you know, I mean, maybe maybe it was like in the, I, you know, I think punk rock changed a lot in the sense that um, like in 85 to 87, mm-hmm. because we became less punk and more like the, like hardcore, right? And then the hardcore kind of got melded with, uh, you know, either voluntarily or involuntarily in some cases with, uh, with the metal, there's a whole sort of crossover. Then you had stuff like DRI with the spawn of that, but everybody, you know, to, you know, from that scene and also like from punk a little bit too, obviously we're taking a cue from motorhead, which is like, to me, they were like the biggest influence on that because we're like, wow, punks like them, metal people like them. And uh, so you had this really straight up punk rock, but also at the same time too, the, the kind of crowd that uh, punk rock shows would draw changed. It stopped being so much fun. And you started to get more skinheads that were there just cause trouble and act like uh, jerks and stuff like that. And uh, um, so it ended up like uh, the previous scene, like in 78 to 83 for us, where you had this wonderful mix of music that died off. And then gigs became strictly hardcore gigs, right? And some of those were great, you know, and then some of them were like ugly. Well, you brought up so much stuff that I actually have on this list of questions I wanted to talk to you about today right off the bat. So I guess like going off that, um, you know, like it's, it's, you know, going back to that kind of like, you know, perfect idealized time where you have this sort of diversity and sound kind of all going on. Like it's, it's yeah. amazing how there's, you know, this core scene of the bands that we talked about, but there's also like this whole, like, you know, uh, the, what is it? The MDM record scene, the Ma, Mo Da Mu records i think it's called with 5440 and and uh oh yeah 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 okay don't you mean yeah and it, it feels like like there was just you know just, you know and it's a very small city compared to somewhere like los angeles but it just feels like there was mm-hmm. just so much creativity and i was just always wondering like where do you think that came from like was it arts funding in schools or like why is there just so much drive to kind yeah, of create i i don't I don't remember any funding because we had like such a, a ridiculously right-wing government and the last thing they wanted to fund was the arts, yeah. especially the subversive arts, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they couldn't give a, they, 
you know, their idea of culture was a uh, little house on the prairie was a good show, right? Type thing. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going back a ways for your listeners. Right. You'll have to look that one up. Right. <laughs> I got to stop classic, using these classic re- show. It's, it's, it's indication. Yeah, but I got to stop reusing these references that are 50 years old. Right. So, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was just like, I kept the banker was a funny gathering spot. Um, like a lot of Americans came up there, you know, from the Vietnam War. So it had this like kind of counterculture type vibe. And it was like a little bit left wing and uh, it could be really right wing. And there was a lot of people on the left too. Like it was like one, one of those kind of things that, um, you know, organized labor was like really strong. And uh, there was all sorts of groups of like anarchists uh, that were involved with shows and stuff like that uh, at the time. And uh, I, it, it was a funny uh, sort of gathering gathering point too, right? You know, so whereas you think that Toronto and Montreal would be would be similar, and you know they both had creative scenes too, of course, right? But but for like a small town of at the time, you know, probably a million and a half people in total, like mm-hmm. everywhere out here, um, that came up with so many strange and interesting uh, sounds. Yeah, no, and it feels like. You know, everyone's doing unique things too, and it's not derivative. Like, I guess, is that, do you think that's a function of the fact? Like, they always make a big deal of this in every Seattle documentary ever that grunge was a result of the fact that people weren't coming through Seattle. Do you think it's kind of the same sort of thing with Vancouver that you guys just developed your own sounds because you weren't necessarily having these bands kind of coming through? Like, I think that's the thing with Toronto. We just always had touring acts coming through, and it just kind of took up a lot of the oxygen, I think. Yeah, I think uh, part of a, you know, I think Vancouver, it was like a backwater, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was like a really, like, really large, small town. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, There's like over a million people or whatever. But it still had a real kind of country um, feel to it in a way, right? You know, mm-hmm. except for maybe the downtown or whatever. But it was like super spread out and not, not densified at all. And uh, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, no, I just, I think it's, it's, it's just fascinating that like you're saying, like, you know, you'd, you'd expect this would also happen in Montreal and Toronto and it just doesn't, but you know, Montreal was the place I actually wanted to talk to you about. Like, what are your memories of, of kind of going there for the first time and seeing what that was like? Because, you know, it does get going eventually and it is, you know, certainly by the time the nineties rolls around the biggest yeah. punk scene in, you know, Canada. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, the first time we went there, I think, was uh, probably about 81 or something like that, mm-hmm. probably on the Hardcore 81 tour. And uh, we put up a band called Scum, which yeah. were like, uh, people remember them. They were a pretty, pretty good band. And uh, it, it, yeah, we and we went, went out and played Quebec City too, right? So they played two shows, obviously, the main towns. And uh, um, I, I, I don't like it. Uh, I don't have like one uh, memory that like kind of stands out. Oh, this was the most crazy thing or anything like that. Like the show shows were pretty good, but they're, they were pretty small. Mm-hmm. And I think the first big show that we played, um, we played at the old church on uh, Ruberry uh, with the Nils and probably about 84. And that's the first time we really saw like a big audience in Montreal. Like, I mean, you always get more popular and the Nils were on their way up and stuff like that. Um, and uh, it's funny, 
funny uh, thing because uh, BC always had a uh, to me always had a real connection with Quebec uh, in the sense that it was like more left wing than the rest of Canada, and it was like you know the BC of course never got the attention that Quebec did, but there two provinces that were kind of at odds with the Canadian standard, you know, being Ontario and pretty well everywhere else, right? Which were like sort of set the template for like, uh, I don't know, acceptable behavior in Canada, <laughs> right? So, yeah. but you know, Quebec, Quebec had a real, I mean, Montreal obviously had a great music and art scene because that was any aspiring Quebecois uh, kids that wanted to make it. Would move to Montreal, but I mean, hey, same thing. Um, a lot of people—that's what draws a lot of people to Toronto, and what's always drawn a lot of people to uh, Vancouver as well, right? So we got a lot of people from all over Western Canada. That might be part of it. They just go like, you know, if they if they don't know Toronto and they don't want to go there, then they probably end up in Vancouver if they don't trying to get to LA or New York. Yeah, it really feels like, you know, in talking to other people that have come on the show from other parts of sort of Western and, and sort of more central Canada that you kind of had a choice. You either would move to Toronto or you'd move to Vancouver. And, you know, yeah. if naked and all these people have talked about like, yo, you, why would you move to Toronto and Vancouver? You're closer to the, to the West Coast. And also there's this huge scene that's kind of happening there. Yeah, it was it was fortuitous for us uh, that we when DOA started in uh uh, February 78, and then we had our first single out by June that year, and I mailed copies around to everywhere, but uh, we did kind of made a conscious, semi-unconscious decision to go to California instead of going across Canada, because mm -hmm. we said, well, there's not that many big cities, and Toronto's 3,000 miles away, or 4,500 kilometers, and uh, San Francisco is only a 1500 kilometers and LA is like 2000 kilometers away. Right. So, uh, and then we just started going to California like six, seven times a year, maybe eight times a year. Somebody calls up. Hey, you want to come down and play the show with us in LA next week? We went, yeah. Okay. We'll see you there. You know, there was no question about, Oh, how much money do we got? We just kind of show up and just sort of like, okay, we're DOA. We're, we're here to play type thing. Um, one person I wanted to ask you about that I've totally forgot to ask you about last time was Lee, the singer of the Skulls, who was Australian, right? Yeah, Lee uh, Lee Kendall. Lee Kendall. Um, okay, so this is the craziest thing, that we had this band called the Skulls. I was a rhythm guitar player. Brad Kent was the lead guitar player. Uh, Tim was the drummer. Wimpy was the bass player. And... Uh, we were looking for a singer, and this guy answered an ad in uh, our local paper called the Georgia Strait and showed up, and he had, a, like, a bad attitude, and he was an Aussie. And I, I don't think any of us had ever met an Aussie before, and we're just like, no. <laughs> and so we had our first show. It was in this little suburb of Vancouver called White Rock down on the beach, um, and uh, White Rock, but it's by the beach, I should say. And uh, they were having an afternoon picnic, and Buck Cherry from the Marinettes was there. Art Bergman's band, early band called the Smorgs played. And we got to play. And it was like a hot summer day. And we all got up there uh, wearing black leather jackets and, you know, aviator glasses or whatever that we thought punk rock was supposed to look like in those days. <laughs> and it's our very first show. And the audience was all like greasy hippies with uh, Jack Daniels t-shirts and uh, stuff like that. And they they started like hucking garbage ass and uh, Lee got up on the mic singer and uh, went like, anybody come up here right now? 
I'm going to kick their ass. You guys are all dead if you come near me or the band, right? And, uh, you know, <laughs> and we went, whoa, this guy's got great eyes. We were like 19 or whatever, right? And this guy was a, you know, a, you know Australians can be pretty rough hewn, shall a we say, right? sometimes, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're kind of just part of the upbringing, right? I mean, I love the place in a lot of ways, right? And, uh, and then he went on and uh, probably did about two, three shows with him. He disappeared. But apparently he had another band in Australia. But oh, I've wow. been to Oz. Yeah, I've been to Oz like maybe six, seven times on tour with DOA. But I, he's never encountered or we never connected or he never realized, oh, that's the guy I was in the band with or whatever, right? You know, so who knows? Maybe he's a plumber or like uh, he's a, uh, is a rocket scientist uh, in the Australian desert or something. I don't know. Did, was he like, was he older than you guys? Maybe by a year or two. Okay. You know, we, I say we were, me, Wimpy, and Dimwick, uh, we're all the same age, like 18, 19. And uh, Brad, yeah, Brad, uh, Kent, same thing. Um, and uh, Lee might have been 21 or 22. Okay. Somewhere around there. So did he, was he just there as like an exchange student or like, how do you wind up in Vancouver? I, I have no idea. And this is like the oddest thing about it, that he was the singer. And so they kind of like, you know, it's like somebody would show up. There was like, there were so little people that knew anything about punk rock. Yeah. And he showed up and we said, okay, we got a couple original songs and we do uh, three or four songs by the damned, a couple of Iggy Pop songs and uh, a Ramon song. That our set was something like that, right? Maybe we do seven covers and had seven originals. And he said, sure, I can learn them. No problem. And we had two or three practices and he had it down pat. The, the guy was talented and he was like, he was kind of on the tough side too, which yeah. is always handy. So like, yeah, was he into this Australian stuff? Because I guess the Australian scene kicks off a couple years earlier. And then even before that, you've got like that, uh, the Sharpie music stuff. Yeah, I'm not that familiar with it, but definitely... Um, Probably in your travels, you've seen that, like, when you go to Oz or uh, New Zealand, that the English record companies were really good at getting their stuff out everywhere around the world, way better mm -hmm. than the Canadian or American record companies. Mm -hmm. So I found tons of people down there that would name all sorts of obscure English punk bands, go like, oh, yeah, these guys are the greatest. You ever play with these guys? I go like... Uh, I barely heard of them, <laughs> you know, and they, they're managed to get their music. So when you think about, I mean, the Ramones were the first, we, we, everybody knows that. And, uh, but the, 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 I don't want to say deluge, but the, the, the stream of English punk rock records that came out really early, like late 76, all the way through 77, 78 was way more than what was happening in the United States or Canada, right? Yeah. And they, they, they had companies that record companies went like, well, kids are buying this. We can sell this. And they were exporting it, right? So so then you had that influence went that to me, and an Australian might disagree with me, went down there and you had these like crazy uh, Australian bands came out of it, right? That were like, you know, way, way more than competent, some good bands too. Oh yeah, definitely. It's, it's, uh, it's also, it's almost like ACDC got in the DNA of rock and roll there. And ever since then, there's just been like a consistent stream of just kick-ass bands doing, doing rock music, rock and roll music. 
Yeah, the ACDC thing's a funny thing because we were like, we used to have this big house that was called the Plaza, and all the bands stayed there from everybody was coming through Vancouver playing punk bands. And it had about eight rooms and blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's kind of the communal place. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my friends there, and this is like probably 78 or something like that, he says, Joe, have you, have you heard these guys who are called ACDC? And I said, no, no. And he goes, well, they're, they're kind of punks. I went, oh, really? And they're from Australia. I went, oh, okay, that's weird. And he put it on. And of course, it doesn't sound anything like punk rock. But there's definitely this like uh, kind of aggro type, I'll kick your ass type attitude mm-hmm. that, you know, you know, you can see the punk rock coming out of that, you know, type thing uh, from a, you know, a down under perspective. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's also wild. Like I was last time we were there, I was hanging in this record store there, Vicious Sloth, and the guy was showing me a poster for ACDC 70, a tour they did of high schools in 75. And the color scheme looks exactly like Nevermind the Bollocks. And it's like two <laughs> years before. It's like the exact same color scheme. And even it even I might even say maybe it's a little later, maybe it's 76, but it even says punk rock on the flyer, I think. Oh my god. Well, that's like pretty funny. Um it's crazy. Um uh my favorite ACDC poster, we were in Germany, uh touring with DOA, like um I want to say about 13 years ago, 14, somewhere around there. And there, there was, you get those big, big ass posters on fences that for open air uh, shows like at yeah, stadiums. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, like lots of football stadiums in Germany, the whole 50,000 people. <laughs> right. And the open air featured ACDC, but they were the warm up act for David Hasselhoff. He was headlining <laughs> the, op- he was headlining the open air and ACDC was the direct support. And we just stopped and went, and we tried to pull one of these things off the fence. We thought, okay, this is, we got to take this back home. Nobody will believe this type thing, right? Yeah. And uh, we couldn't pry it off the fence or whatever. Like, I can't remember what happened, right? But I was going like, huh, okay, how, how could this happen? <laughs> I bet you Angus Young walked backstage and told the Hoff, follow that, you know? Stop <laughs> that. Um, well, who knows? Uh, if you ever listen to it, I couldn't figure out whether the guy was popular. Then I heard some of his music, and I still couldn't figure out whether the guy was popular. Right? So put it that way. Yeah, no, there's definitely, uh, you know, he found his market, though. He found his market. He- <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Him and Hi- him and Hino. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you, you brought up Art Bergman's. Uh, you brought up Art Bergman's uh, first band there, and is that that's probably got to be the one of the first, you know, Vancouver punk records. Like, do you consider what are the Schmogs, Smorgs? The Smorgs. Yeah, it was a uh, S M O R G S something like that. Smorgs. Yeah, S H. Something. Yeah, yeah, something like that. It might have an H in there, right? So. So somehow it was the smorgs, like uh, a weird version of a smorgasbord or something like that. And I had a copy of the record. I haven't had, somehow it's disappeared years ago. Uh, it wasn't really punk, but it definitely wasn't like straight out rock and roll. Yeah. So it was like the Surrey guys and a bunch of the Surrey guys. I mean, uh, also Buck Cherry from the Marinettes was from Surrey and uh, Gord, who played keyboards on... Uh, uh, for the point of six, he was from Surrey. So they had their little gang that moved into Vancouver when punk rock started, just like we 
had our little gang that moved in from Burnaby and Port Moody in the Vancouver when punk rock started, right? So mm-hmm. it was sort of suburban, not gangs, but suburban groups of people that moved into downtown and all of a sudden you had a scene, right? But I remember talking to Art about the, the smorgasbord. I said, well, how'd that sell? You know, after I got to know him, it, you know, the young Canadians had started and he went like, uh, says, well, let me tell you, I still got 600 in my mother's basement, right? So I... <laughs> Yeah, like it's it's such a I didn't I I must have flipped by it a few times over the years before I finally picked it up and looked at the credits yeah. on it because it doesn't look it doesn't look like it's gonna be that great of a record from the front cover. Yeah, it was okay. I I I, I couldn't comment properly. I remember not being crazy about it at the time, but who knows? It's a definitely a historical artifact, and uh, you know what? Art uh, got the uh, order of, uh, order of Canada, so that's- oh, absolutely. Oh no, and I think I think the songs, you know, it's not like you're saying it's not punk. The songs on it are fantastic, and there's really like, you know, right. you, can, you can tell that it's kind of moving. You know, it's 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 that moment where people are doing it before they've got it all figured out yet. Like it's still like it's a lot of energy yeah. to it in that way. You you got a great point there because like in uh, in our scene here, out here with all Vancouver and all the surrounding burbs, um, that everybody had an idea kind of what punk rock was like. So you're talking like early 1977 or something like that, and uh, maybe even like maybe it was 76 I think, and uh, nobody really knew what it was like, and we everybody seen a little bit of thing on TV about the sex pistols or the damned or the Ramones or something like that. And then, uh, and nobody really knew quite what punk rock was. And then the Ramones came to town, they played and everybody went, Oh, okay. That's punk rock. That, that went, okay. That's how you do that. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? But everyone was, everybody was trying to get there, but, but then the all time experts came to town went, okay, we're going to give all you kids a lesson. Here's yeah. how you play it, right? Yeah. You know, and Dee led the gang, and it was, like, amazing. It feels like they, you know, uh, and you also hear this about that first kind of Patti Smith tour, too, that, like, all these venues that they're playing, like, they're literally spreading a gospel of, like, okay, here's how you're going to do it, and then just go from here, kids. Yeah, that was one of our first, uh, kind of our first big break. Uh, we had uh, a couple of guys, these anarchists that were, like, sort of the, and one ended, one ended up being a DOA manager, and the other guy ended up managing subhumans. But um, we were just playing around town locally, and uh, uh, I think we've been to San Francisco. But uh, they said, oh, there's this big rock against racism show, which, of course, was like everybody knew about. They were having like big, big shows uh, like in, in the U.K., uh, and was really had a big effect and uh, on people and like their their perspective on uh, uh, on racism, right? And uh, but these guys, Ken Lester and David Spanner, said, "Oh, we can get you on this show in Chicago. It's the first big Rock Age racing show, and the Patty Smith band is going to headline it." So we went, "Oh, oh, sure, sure, okay." So we we organized our whole tour to get out to Chicago to play that, right? And there's like. Five uh, Patty Smith didn't show up, but her whole band didn't played, and about five thousand people showed up, and uh, that kind of, that kind of started DOA. It was like July, nineteen seventy nine, on the waterfront uh, by Barrett Stadium in Chicago, and um, you know I've got so I've got great friends I met that day that I'm I'm still great friends with. It was like a you met you met common people came out to that because it was for a good cause and. 
you heard, you heard all this crazy music. But Patti Smith had a big influence, like on uh, pre-punk, like into what it would become for sure. Yeah, she's yeah, it, yeah. Hats off to her. She's great. It's almost like in her and the Ramones, you have the twin influences that would kind of inform punk rock. You know, you've got like the the heady intellectual poetry side and sort of like the yeah. the real kind of like dumb down, like quote unquote dumb down, like like rock and roll side. Yeah, and the Ramones, I think um, they got like a, a terrible rap from the critics because they did they thought that oh these lyrics are so dumb. But you know what? I I was just thinking about this recently. I had another interview with somebody, and I said, you know what? They wrote these lyrics that nobody else dared to write. Yeah, they, they're like, uh, I don't want to go down the basement. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, beat on the brat, and uh, you know, and when we as young people heard these things, we we're like, this is crazy. These guys are insane. You know, it was that kind of feeling that they weren't hippie, the, the hippie rock. And they weren't poets, and so they had this kind of like street thing, you know, fifty third yeah. and third, you know, yeah, exactly. And like I was say, say. They, yeah, and, and like a total street cred, right? It was like, um, uh, if you know anything about DD, then uh, the street cred is not fake; it's it's real as can be, right? So, yeah, I was gonna say like that that song, fifty third and third. Like you talk about the lyrics of that, like it's it's one of the most gut-wrenching kind of honest like you know yeah burn your eyes out with the truth kind of songs out there like he, what he's talking about like and you just you compare it to you like you're saying anything else on the radio at that time and it's just it's just so brutally honest yeah and that would be the direct descendant too like uh of uh like what iggy pop and the mc5 were doing too because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's sort of where the ramones were drawn off those guys as well as all, I mean, the Ramones obviously took a ton of cues from like, you know, uh, late fifties, early sixties rock uh, with their melodies and stuff like that, right? Yeah. You know, but they took these lyrics to a bizarre new place that everybody's going like, okay, it was like dangerous, even though some people call it dumb. I call it dangerous. Yeah, definitely. When I was, you know, I think that's a they're a band that is just there's just so much to dive into with them. Like, you know, and like, they never put out a bad record ever. And so it's just like, you can go through and just, there's just so many weird lyrical moments on those things. Like, yeah. you know, I, I love the political songs later on. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Which is like, uh, yeah. And, uh, and Joey was like really conscious uh, in that area. And uh, obviously he had like lots of disagreements with Johnny uh, who was like, you know, or, more on the right wing side right so but uh yeah yeah what was your take on going to new york because that seems like you know like you're there in 81 but like what was that scene like when you first go there oh we went there in 79 you were there in 79 uh, oh wow yeah first trip yeah because we put that rock against racism yeah and we stayed at some guy's house we didn't have another show for a week so we we drank all his booze and ate him all, ate all his food and they kicked us out and uh, we drove to New York. Right. So um, it was kind of like uh, going to New York was great. We uh, found this warehouse. It was run, run by the Zippies and mm-hmm. it was like uh, number nine Bleecker Street. It was like half a block from uh, CBGB's. Right. And we didn't go into CBGB's. We didn't have any money. We arrived in New York City with one show a week later and we had 20 bucks, right? So to our, not each, but to our name and uh, with an old broken down band, that kind of thing. And uh, it was, it was crazy. Uh, we, we got a break 
because um, we did, did one show like that. The first trip was that you know didn't really make much impression. Was the second one, nineteen eighty, mm-hmm. that um, we played one tiny show, and then the, the Dills were pretty big, right? You know, good friends of ours, right? You know, uh, Tony uh, Tony Kinman, the uh, Russia's soul, right? Yeah, yeah. really talented guy. Um, that uh, so they invited us onto the show at this big club called Hurrahs, right? And, uh, and you know, we were out to make an impression. So we ran around the and Biafra was there and a bunch of people from Vancouver. And we thought the New York people watching the show were like completely lame because it was a lame rock and roll club. Um, so we ran around the outside of the room, like elbowing everybody, like and smashing into and like, you know, trying to enlarge the mosh pit. Mm. But that making the mosh pit the entire hall, right? <laughs> and uh, I so anyway, so Randy smacked it by you know not maliciously knocked over this one woman, and then she claimed up, got the bouncers, got the management, said her wrist was broken. Randy should be arrested, and uh, Rampage is going to jail. And uh, we're going like uh, our manager managed to talk uh, Randy out of going to jail, but with. That was our first big impression on New York because everybody was, oh, these fucking DOA guys are fucking crazy and they bring this Jello Biafra guy with them and they they cause all this shit, right? You know, so I, it's the same kind of thing like, you know, but when we got to towns, you had to find a way to cause some shit and, ma- and make yourself known. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was sort of our opportunity in New York. We were, we were pretty amazed uh, by the sheer size of New York, right? Uh, like I had lived in Toronto uh, briefly, like in 77, you know, for four or five months, you know, and Toronto's a big city, obviously, right? But uh, New York, not compared to New York City, right? So, and yeah. uh, we were just going, whoa, you know, like, uh, you know, and like, there was a lot of good punk bands there, but it was also like, a, it, was, it was very fashionable mm. type thing. And uh, I think part of the DOA's appeal, and it was a, really unintentional is that we were so sort of pretty rough hewn uh coming from like backwater in Canada we're just seen as like okay these guys are hicks from a lumberjack town and, <laughs> and you know it, we might have taken offense at that but you know it was basically true <laughs> you know so you might as well be what you are i think that's always a good philosophy in life right you know yeah. don't try to pretend to be something else right and uh uh and we we kind of just worked on that and just like we're like okay everybody thinks we're lumberjacks okay we'll get lumberjack shirts okay we got hockey sticks okay we got chainsaws you know so like, <laughs> and what, one thing led to another like we started I think uh, uh, Dr. McKeegan, he said that, like uh, he said, that all the times, every time DOA came to Seattle, they, to us, they were like KISS. They always had a routine, right? So they- <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like you guys are always, you know, and I've, I've told you this last time, like always brought up as being the best band of the era, like in, in at live, just blowing every single band off the stage every time because like you guys were just wild on stage you know like but who i wanted to ask you this last time and i totally forgot like who were your favorite live bands of that era of of like sort of like your first when you're first going out and touring yeah i mean i um the guys who got along really well with it and i thought they were like 
the most interesting in a way would be Black Flag. Mm. And we play with all all the different singers and they're all good and stuff like that. Like, and I'm friends with all those guys. Um, and, uh, but I really like the, the, the dynamics between, uh, Robo Chuck and Greg Ginn. Cause yeah. we looked down like, we know DOA sort of sped up rock and roll, but those guys were sort of like, okay, well, that's really weird. Why are they doing that? Hmm. Oh, okay. And, you know, and, and that's, and that's just kind of one of the main reasons why I really, like seeing those guys, but other great bands of the there. I mean, maybe a couple years later with uh, Ty Kreutzen. Yeah, um, we saw um, Husker Du, and it might have been one of their first shows. Or like, you know, we played with them at uh, the Seventh Street Entry in uh, in Minneapolis, right? And uh, they came out and did uh, the flip side of their first single. Is the thing is called Statues, and it's really slow yeah. and long. And they played that. Then they played the Land Speed record uh, from start to finish, which is like, I don't know, 15 songs in 18 minutes or something like that, right? Yeah. And it was like kind of really one of the really early hardcore records. And uh, um, even if people weren't calling it that at that point, but it was, right? And uh, yeah. and we became good friends with those guys. And the, they they were really impressive, like in a lot of, lot of different ways, like songwriting and... Uh, just being like really funny people, right? You know, like uh, we go to Grant Hart, uh, you know, I go, you know, we say, where'd you learn to uh, drum like that? I've been up in Minneapolis, right? And then he go like, you know, well, you know, it's like uh, when I was 12 years old, he told the story. Uh, I used to play with this polka band, Frankie Yankovic. They were missing the drummer and I, I would fill in for him. And Frankie Yankovic was like super famous, most famous polka guy. Yeah. And we go, really? Really? And we go around believing that. And of course, he was just like shitting us, right? So he just made that. He'd tell the same story to everybody along the way. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I drummed the polka band. That's where I learned to drum like that, right? You know, like, so, uh, you know, um, I mean, uh, we saw, I, I think, I got to think where a real classic thing was uh, playing with the Bad Brains. Yeah. Really early uh, in New York City. Uh, and we played one show at the 171A by Tompkins Park, and we had a break, uh, and we went up and played with the Bad Brains at another club about a block away, and saw them. So this is like 79 or something like that, and uh, it was like, yeah, they were like really interesting because they were just kind of in their in their infancy. Mm -hmm. They haven't really they hadn't really got to their full dynamic power that they you know they were those guys were like um, near the top of the echelon in many many ways right so yeah, yeah. Uh, as, as everybody knows right so um yeah they were incredible and uh yeah they're, they're the they're the other band that's brought up on the show like you and them are the the two bands that are kind of brought up that would show up and and you know bands were like oh shit we gotta we gotta tighten our stuff up a little bit you know so we gotta we gotta figure this we gotta be a little bit more uh professional about this thing yeah, it's a funny thing. We just sort of learned. We had a really good group of, um, even though the lineup changed uh, substantially over the years, but I mean, you think about the first couple of lineups to deal away from uh, Chuck, Randy, and I, and then later on with like Wimpy and Dimwood, mm -hmm. uh, you know, up to about 85 and stuff like that. And John Card and uh, Dave Gregg in there, like, uh, um, 
Yeah, that was for the first twice. I mean, not that we don't have a good lineup now. I'm not saying that. If my bandmates hear me. What are you talking about? <laughs> so, uh, hey, Joe, good talking shit about us. No, um, that, uh, yeah, there's some real dynamic guys that, uh, that just really wanted to make an impression. And it's just like, and uh, what Randy, Chuck, and I had started, you know, it kind of morphed along the way, just had kind of had, uh, there was a, a real lively thing. Yeah. You know, we said, okay, uh, three things want to do okay what's the what's the way schools okay one is to play super loud obnoxious music uh two is to have a great time doing it three is to change the world you know and all of us kind of fit into that category one way or the other right but you know some leaning more one way than the other right you know (laughs) yeah yeah no it's it's you know it's it's just such a it's such an amazing time for yeah. just pop culture, you know, like you look at the birth of yeah. rap music, the birth of punk and hardcore graffiti. Like, it just feels like this was the moment where, where young people and, and just people took power of culture into their own hands. Yeah. And I gotta say, I think a, a big thing is uh, that um, uh, I have a, a, my youngest son, Clayton is like 24 and uh He's quite into punk rock, and we, we talked about this there. And I went like, uh, um, "Yeah, wow, it's a crazy time." And I said, "Yeah, basically there was no rules, mm. and it's not like today where like you, you know, things are are not wide open." It was a, it didn't matter east or west. It was pretty well the wild west. You know, it didn't matter where you were, right? So it just had kind of like you could go do whatever you wanted, right? Yeah. Some people took that the right way. Some people took that the wrong way, obviously. Right. So like, uh, uh, there's a bunch of us uh, that are not around anymore and stuff like that. Right. So um, it rests their souls. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it was a really dynamic and just experimental because like, I think the key thing was, is that, that, that was the essence of rock music. But by the time punk rock came along and that's why punk rock came along, is that rock music had forgotten how to be wild and unpredictable. Yeah. It become very corporatized and uh, very staid and very planned and uh, very dependent on the manager planning your next move. Whereas like you had these punks show up of all different shapes, sizes, races, gender, and uh, just like, oh, so this is how you cause shit. Yeah. This is how you got shit. <laughs> and you went out there and uh, you you did your best to do that, but to one extent or another. It was a really like a ton of fun. I mean, I was just, I, I tell you, Damon, like um, at the time when punk rock came along, I had just enrolled in uh, Simon Fraser University and my goal was to become a lawyer. So uh <laughs> things turned out quite differently along the way right yeah no it definitely uh you know it, but it, it it changed the world like you know like it did change the world like there's there's this music you know and and specifically hardcore you know you go around to indonesia there's kids you know doing yeah okay that that was crazy you've been down that way uh no we've never we, gotten to play there it's one of my one oh, of my bucket okay. list places yeah, it's full. I haven't been there, but I've been to Malaysia, and okay. uh, which is you know on the same uh, archipelago yes. of islands, right? And uh, uh, the kids there were insane. And the most bizarre moment of the night was we played 
play the show, play for an hour, then uh, people yelled, play some more like an encore type thing. Yeah. And um, some kid kept yelling out the hockey song, like stomping Tom Connors. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going like, hey, in Malaysia, there's no ice. There's only like jungle and heat. And, uh, you know, and uh, we looked at each other and went, okay, yeah, we can play that. <laughs> and we, we played it and the, the audience went berserk. And we're going like, and we all like when we, when we got back to where we're staying, we were like, "How is this possible? Like, what what drove that?" <laughs> like, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's like uh, yeah, you can go play yeah, you can go play anywhere. I mean, it's amazing. Like playing in China was great. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. unfortunately, you can't go there right now. Then we got the thing with the two Michaels being held hostage there. Um, it's really a terrible situation and the Chinese communist uh, party is like, I, well, let's just say it's the new incarnation of Hitler um, with the way they're treating the Uyghurs like in the, the, uh, in the Western part of the country, it's just a, a disgrace to humanity. But uh, what I went there three times and what a crazy, wonderful place. The people were great. Mm. Like it was so much fun. And uh People were expressive. There was great bands, and like uh, it was, it was, it was amazing. Yeah, like it really felt like you know. Obviously, I, I certainly not didn't get to experience the birth of of punk and hardcore here. But like going over there when we went over there, it really felt like we weren't there for the birth of it because it had already been going for you know a few years yep. by that point. But it really felt like it was it was just beginning to kind of come together, and it was so exciting to kind of meet yep. bands where they're like the first bands doing it. Yeah, I don't know. Crazy. They had crazy good bands and uh, um, and just, uh, yeah, it was just really, yeah, you're totally right. Because it just, to me, it just reminded me of like 1981 or something mm-hmm. like that, right? Mm-hmm. I was just going, whoa, okay, this is just taking off here. And I said, and I said, how people listen to music I said, oh, well, they listen to all on their phones, right? So this is like, I guess, oh, uh, nine was the first time we went, which I think maybe you guys probably went about 012 or 011, something like that. No, I think we were, we were there. I think you must have gone 08 because I think we were there right after okay. you guys were. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was 08, 09, yeah. maybe. Yeah, it was Abe, uh, Abe Dale yep. that put on the show. Yeah, that guy's great. I'm still Amazing. in contact with him. Great guy. Yeah. yeah. And what, like that was, you know, I look back on that tour and it's just. I don't know. That was, you know, it, it, once again, like we've gotten to do a lot of, not a lot of touring by that point, we've done a, a fair bit of touring, but it was just such a unique experience. Like I still, like, I remember every detail of that tour in a way. I can't really remember most details from tours. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. Like I, I can picture like so many things from uh, trips to China. It was just like uh, bizarre at times. Yeah. We played this one outdoor festival in Beijing like a pretty big one. We've been the main stage at about 10,000 people. We put a side stage with about 5,000 and people were like, uh, they had these big, they're really fond of these big banners yeah. that I didn't know what they said. Cause they're all like uh, Chinese characters, but they, they were that band logos and people would be waving around at the same time. People were letting off these like uh, super high powered explosives and all it would take was for one of these explosives to catch the flag that people were waving around, start this giant fire and this huge disaster. And there was like, and you had a bunch of policemen around the edge of the festival board uh, leaning against the fence, not paying any attention. It was just like, eh, 
okay, whatever. Kids are having fun, right? <laughs> and they, they gave it to get on this festival. They gave us, uh, uh, you got to submit some songs, right, uh, with their lyrics mm-hmm. to, in order to get, you know, like a cultural inspection. So we went, uh, oh, okay. So we picked out about the six most innocuous uh, DOA songs and sent some MP3s and some lyric sheets. And, uh, of course, the songs that we have never played type thing live. And uh, I got there before the show. So the tour manager, Abe, says, uh, I said, well, you know, there's all sorts of police here. How should we act? And he says, I'll be a little bit careful. And I said, okay. And my bandmates looks at me, yeah, oh, yeah, chill, watch your mouth. You got a big mouth, right? <laughs> no secret about that. And uh, I said, okay. And I just got up there and said exactly everything I want to say. And uh, my my rhythm section looked at me. Okay, I guess we're going to jail now. But you know, it all turned out to be fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's very lucky because you know that's like one of those places where it, it, it's like when we went to Russia or something where it's cool until it's not cool, and when it's not cool, it's oh. really not cool. Yeah, terrible. Yeah, it, it's like you go like, why the hell did I come here? Type thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess going back to, uh, there's so much shit I want to talk to you about, but one of the things that I've been fascinated by is this unreleased mystic session that you guys did. Uh, oh, right, right, right. Yeah. What was the story um, with that? Was that supposed to come out on mystic or was it just to see what that studio was no, like? Those or? Mystic guys, I guess there's a single floating around. It's called uh, the menace lives. There's okay. a weird, weird seven-inch single that you can't find. That's an outtake. So, what used to happen at Mystic, and I can't remember the guy who ran the place, Doug Moody. That Doug Moody, Doug Moody. I don't know if Doug Moody's alive or not, but he he is alive. I, he is definitely still kind of doing Mystic, doing the catalog. I'm fascinated by this label, Joe. So, unfortunately, uh, you, I'm now going to punish you about uh, this thing because I, I'm just yeah, it's such an interesting label that he here's this guy with Led Zeppelin's board who just records like every single punk band imaginable, like just yeah. turns it out. Right. Yeah. We got there and then uh, they said, Oh, look at this. Here's the reverb chamber. And we went, Oh yeah. And I said, yeah, let's up and did a uh, whole lot of love here or something like that. I went, well, okay. You know, I mean, that's anybody knows anything about rock. It's a, that's a, a epic track type thing. And yeah. Let's up and let's up and be safe despite the singer is a great band right so um <laughs> i agree with you so much on that <laughs> absolutely yeah, it's just like the band's so great but they've got that skinny guy singing right you know so uh <laughs> way too high a voice and uh so we record there and it was it was supposed to be like supposed to be a demo for i guess we did that with chuck yeah chuck's on that and um because a few of the tracks that ended up there that I never saw the light of day ended up on this comp that I put together at DOA 1978 that came out like uh, a year and a half ago or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So, but I guess they they had a habit of grabbing the tracks, and when the bands weren't looking or they're not in town anymore, they would put out singles and releases. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's just like like complete thievery, right? <laughs> you know, and Doug Moody's probably about 75 years old and he's made his living off ceiling. You know, it's all the type of stuff that's not really worth getting too upset about type thing, right? You know, like, uh, 
unless you're some sort of big show business type, then uh, that's a different story, I guess, right? But I did, you know, when I saw the the bootleg single, I went like, well, oh, these are tracks from Mystic. Fucking asshole, right? <laughs> and then we talked to all sorts of people because people at the time, you know, because that was like kind of our scene hanging out in LA. Uh, went, oh, yeah, oh, that guy's a ripoff, don't record there, right? Yeah, and of course, you're like, oh, we'll record that, it's really cheap, right? <laughs> so, uh, what usually wins out with bands, it's really cheap, right? yeah. So, yeah, uh, another thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is kind of you know, kind of directly feeds off this mystic thing, is you guys never seem to, with the exception of alternative tentacles, of course, like you know, and then obviously sudden death later on and, and early on too. Yep. But you never seem to wind up with the right label. Like every label you're on, it's like those records are are kind of hard to find. Like I just yeah. was, was that just because you know, you know, is that a function of just necessity or is that? Just were these labels because they're local? You're like, okay, we got to support these local guys, or how did that come about? No, nah, I mean the first guys we dealt with the contestants. Um, you know, poor Ted. Um, he got in financial trouble, and then I uh, uh, a bit of a cocaine habit, right? And uh, so things didn't work out well. And then uh, he was pressing more records and not telling anybody, and we found out and confronted him. And then we went to another little label in Vancouver called Friends. Uh, it was somebody we should have never made friends with. And that guy turned out to be like a cocaine abuser too. You know, there's one of these things that people are looking to launder money. So record label being like a, a good place to do it, I suppose, in those days. Um, and that guy was a total ripoff, right? Mm-hmm. So then we found our we found our turn of tentacles, and that was really great, especially when they had the English division, because Bill Gilliam ran the label that guy was amazing right you know we got uh we put out positively doa in uh 1981 that's the first time we went over there and it got single of the week and sold about seven thousand copies or something like that um and then it we kind of fell into doing different labels and that had a big influence from the managers so it depends who the managers were tied into we have a few different managers right so mm-hmm. but you're totally right that all these labels, we get on these labels and they would go bankrupt. So uh, Dave Gray used to say, well, Joe, I guess we're just, we're box office poison. We're a label killer, right? And I, I went, hmm, maybe you got a point there. He says, you know what we should do? We should see if Dow Chemical has a label, get signed to them, then we can bankrupt Dow Chemical, right? And stop all their horrible things that you doing like Trident submarines and horrible chemicals, right? So yeah. that was kind of our theory that any company we sign to will go bankrupt sooner or later, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the same thing happens, I guess, with CD characters too, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, that guy was awful. I, and he was like, uh, ask anybody in the San Francisco scene, and uh, David Ferguson was a real piece of work. Um, he actually got in a lawsuit with the Rolling Stones and won. Uh, he had this, yeah, he had the rights to um, that film called Cocksucker Blues. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And he and uh, he had bootlegged that. I, I don't know all the circumstances, right? Yeah. Um, but he had put it out and he got in a lawsuit and he won the right to show it a couple times a year. I mean, the Rolling Stones remained, retained most of the rights. Yeah. But that guy, that guy was tenacious and, uh, my friend Winston Smith, he used to do all these covers for like alternative tentacles, DKs, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I got 
this must be going back 20 years now. He says, oh, Joe, uh, David wants to put out my stop in the book. He's going to help me out. And I go, Winston, you run the, the other way down one of those really steep San Francisco hills and go as far as way you can as you can from this man, right? So, like, uh, you know, because you'll shake your hand, shake your hand, and you'll be like, hey, I've got three fingers left. What happened to that, right? So, yeah, because, you know, and it's funny because, well, it's not funny. It's almost tragic that all these labels that we're talking about put out so much good stuff yeah. that, that it's just like it just wasn't available or just didn't, you know, like it did get out, but just not in the way it should have. Yeah. And, the, you know, some of the punk rock labels weren't super great either, uh, but you did have really great labels like Discord, mm-hmm. Alternative Tackles, um, and they were the really great and really honorable with the artists right so yeah. um you know so there's a mix of things but some of the old rock and roll guys uh were going like uh, yeah boy this punk rock song the kids like why the kids like this stuff right let's get in on this right and that you know as the same old kind of uh show business thing and uh, they get in there and try and exploit it as badly as they can and keep all the money or when there's no you know what i mean like any yeah. number of things could happen right but generally the bottom line was the band never got anything right so i guess also like going back to vancouver it, it always seemed to me how much more political that scene is right from the get-go like in 78 the first show you guys play someone burns the constitution right well not the first show you yeah. play but like one of the first punk shows i mean yeah with, with the yeah we played outdoors stanley park it was uh canada day July 1st, 78, and uh, we called it anti-candidate. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, there was that money being burned. The Constitution got burned. And, uh, um, yeah, it was a – yeah, Bankeroo had a real – still does, um, but had a real activist, uh, left-wing, and also anarcho-type uh, vibe to it, which mm-hmm. I think is one of the reasons why it turned out the way it was because there's no record companies there there was nobody to sign to uh so everybody's just going okay i'm just going to go out and do this because this is a a statement on who i am or what, what i want to do or what i believe in whatever whatever people's motives were in those days right so and uh yeah it's that i think that was a, a strength of the scene oh definitely like it just feels i don't know it just feels like uh every band is is a lot more politically motivated like there's obviously political bands that came out of Toronto and stuff but like yeah. it just not not in the same sort of way it doesn't seem no not quite not, not to the same degree and i think that's so that same thing with new york you could say not that there mm-hmm. hasn't been political things there there was that when you have a record industry nearby then maybe sometimes not in all cases maybe sometimes the band spend more time on on get trying to get signed to a record label than on following what they believe in a little bit of that 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 doesn't explain it the whole thing but that's one take on that another thing that you know you brought up earlier and you're running off this political thing is the involvement of the yippies in the early punk scene like it just feels like so many of the venues that were popping up were yippie spaces and it just feels like that was kind of an adjacent thing that was happening or not it already happened i guess yeah yeah, I did. like I said, the first time we went to uh, New York, that's where we stayed, was the Yippie Space, run by Dana Beale, who's like a famous, uh, super famous uh, Yippie, head of the Yippies, if there is such a thing. Um, and our 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 manager and some humans manager were like Yippies. 
And it was like, because the counterculture of the late 60s, early 70s uh, had kind of fallen apart and you didn't, you know, think about that those days. Uh, I mean, when I was in high school, really, really high school, junior high, then uh, you had people like Jimi Hendrix and Country Joe McDonald. And they were like protesting the Vietnam War, uh, uh, protesting the arms buildup between the Soviet Union and America. Uh, and that generation became co-opted, right? And the people that were on the fringe, like the hippies, became hippies. So it was their way of taking action. And when they saw punk rock, uh, they went like, oh, these guys, because, you know, let's say punk rock came out in 77 or whatever. They went like, wow, it feels like 1969 all over again type yeah. thing, right? So, and I think that's a real key because it went like, oh, there's a whole new generation. <clears throat> and they sound a lot different than what we heard in 1968 or 69. But it's the same kind of uh, political uh, resistance spirit, uh, like uh, where you question authority, you you stand up to racism, you stand up to sexism, uh, you stand up to warmongers and weapons proliferation, right? I mean, these are the key things to me that, you know, punk rock uh, was founded on. I mean, not everybody fell into that category, but like an awful lot of us did. And I think that's a lot of the music that survived. You know, and don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with like uh, straight out uh, crazy, dumb punk rock. I love that too, right? So <laughs> it doesn't all have to be political, right? Yeah, yeah no, and it's it's funny, you, like you brought up David Peel, like he even did straight up punk records himself, right? Like he did that David Peel and Death, he did like some 45s and oh, he put up the King of Punk oh, Rock. Okay. I didn't know what he did with Death because that, that, they were the guys they just made a, a great comeback in the last like five years, right? The, no, I think this might be another death, actually. This is like the, uh, I think the New York death. I think like the Skulls, there were a couple deaths oh, at the okay, time. okay, okay. All right, okay, okay. But, but death is back, a cool band, though. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. a fantastic band. Like it just, uh, yeah, yeah. that's why I love this thing is that there's so much discovery you can still do in punk rock. Like it was such a cultural explosion. There's just so many yeah. bands. Yeah, and it was hard to, unless you become like a bit of a punk rock historian, like, uh, uh, if you go to um, uh, Jello Biafra's place, she's got like, yeah. I don't know, 15,000 albums there. Yeah. And he knows exactly where everyone is. And he knows the history of every record. Yeah. Uh, so, unless you have that kind of level of music, there's a few bands that you could miss along the way, right? Of you know? course. Yeah. 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 I'm just, I, you know, and once again, talking about the politics, I guess like, you know, the most kind of overt and, and well, certainly well-known kind of expression of this is the Squamish five and I just, or the Vancouver five. And I was just, yeah. I was just wondering like, how did that change the punk scene there? Like, were you guys under surveillance after that? Like I can imagine you it would have put all the punk rock under a bit of a spotlight. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we were actually in Detroit on tour play with the uh, Angelic Upstarts uh, show there. And we're sitting around you know, like, uh, cause uh, Jerry Hannah, mm-hmm. some humans, uh, like was a childhood friend of uh, Dimwood, Wimpy's, and I. So, you know, we all grew up within about two blocks of each other, right? And uh, in Burnaby. And jeez, uh, has anybody heard from Jerry lately? And we went, no, I haven't talked to that guy lately. And then we got a call, our manager from Vancouver says, holy shit, you won't believe it. Jerry's been arrested. He's in the same small time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, they just there was a, a two minute thing on the phone. We're going, like, what? Right. And uh, I think uh, that after that, I mean, 
there was a lot of, uh, I don't agree with the methods because I think when you uh, foment violence, more violence comes. And that's one of the great things about Canada, why we have a really civil country and way more civil than our neighbors to the south because we, you know, we don't start shooting our guns every time somebody's mad about something. And I think that's their civility within society is like a really important thing. So I didn't agree with their methods, but I, I didn't think they were going to get a fair trial. So myself and everybody else in DOA, we organized like benefit shows for uh, for the Squamish Five, Vancouver Five. And, uh, but, at, but back to your question, after that then, um, Definitely people were, were being watched by the RCMP. I mean, I can't state for a fact, but why wouldn't they be, right? You know, it's like, uh, you know, it's like connection. Uh, like even back pre that in 1981, there was a whole series of bombings in Vancouver where like banks and that uh, public buildings got uh, got fire bombs like thrown through with big windows, right? And uh, it was never clearly stated by uh by by the police uh like who did this or who you know we don't you never really heard what happened i'm sure there's some sort of explanation and somebody they had under surveillance or made some sort of deal with you know like that's kind of way police work is say you know you tell me what happens here i'm gonna let you go so we can get this guy right you know it's like everybody's seen like a million cop shows right so that's the way they do it and um the first hardcore show in North America was like Austin Black Flag and uh, other bands. Uh, and uh, at this place called the Laundromat on Richard Street, downtown Vancouver. And uh, the rumor was that the police, RCMP, had rented the building, an empty storefront across the street and videotaped everybody going in or out because they thought, hmm, this is where all the troublemakers are. Let's identify every one of these type people, right? So, um, that, that was a rumor. I never, I never saw that. Right. So, um, at different times, uh, people were protesting, right. And, uh, you know, yeah, with good cause, right. You know what was going on. Right. So just like when people protest now, um, you, you can get, you can get vilified for what you believe in. I mean, just look at the January 6th insurrection in Washington, DC, uh, those people got off scot-free. I mean, the FBI is pursuing like a couple, two, three hundred of them. If that had been Black Lives Matter, uh, those people would have been shot. You know, yeah. uh, there's like, there's no no doubt about that. There was like, it would have been heavy-handed, like shoot to kill type thing, right? So if it had been like uh, African-Americans, but there are a bunch of white rednecks, you know, so, you know. Yeah, you really, you really get, um, you know, you hear about this stuff all the time now, like the the amount of police surveillance. I remember watching that MC5 documentary, and the best footage in that is of the MC5 plane that the FBI shot. You know, like there's, there's like, it's, yeah. you know, they were they they document this stuff, like they follow these things, and it's, I could imagine after something like that being because that was so high profile in this country. Like I don't think anyone outside of this country can really appreciate how. You know, that was like, you know, the news. And I could only imagine that yeah. that would have led to them kind of looking at punk rock differently as, as authority figures. Yeah. I mean, uh, in different times, uh, if that happened now, it'd be like, uh, yeah, the consequences would be uh, way more severe. Yeah. Put it that way. Yeah. Right, so, yeah, definitely. I, I guess, you know, we kind of, you know, 
talked about it a little bit earlier, but the fact that, that you know, the other thing that kind of happens in Canadian punk rock history, uh, you know, is the BFGs infamously kicking all the Nazis out of Toronto. And then just people have come on these shows and talked about how basically, you know, they kicked them across Canada. They, like, they showed up in Winnipeg and all these, and then a couple months right, later, right. BFGs came through. And then eventually it seems like they all kind of have to wind up at the end of the line, which is, you know, in Vancouver, and I was just kind of wondering about that moment. Like, um, you know, I've, I've heard from people coming on the show from that Vancouver talking about that band Blasphemy fighting Nazis on the street. There being open street brawls and things like that. Like, I was just wondering what your take on that whole thing was when all these Nazis kind of start pouring in. Or did it happen like that in you, what you saw? I mean, a little bit, maybe. I don't see it as that big a thing. I mean, uh, that... I remember we played uh, Nathan Phillips Square in Toronto and, um, you know, with the Volatones, the Demix, um, three other bands. I can't remember. Like, I'd have to look it up. And we had all these guys, like, Sieg Heiling us like crazy. This is 1980. Mm-hmm. You know, somehow they had arranged this show in front of Toronto City Hall. And they got, like, a permit, a big PA, big stage. And we got in a total confrontation with these guys, right? So, um, and so I guess that's a you know the group you're talking about that, uh, and uh, yeah, and, and the goose, uh, you know, fought them, got rid of them. But I don't remember a big influx of them in Vancouver. Um, my experience more based on uh, the the skinheads in San Francisco, and they got into uh, a beef with the Angels there, which is never a good group to get a beef with um and they ended up in milwaukee and dallas and uh we got in tons of fights with them and uh you know lots of threats uh, as soon as your show's over i got stab you type thing right now so yeah. um i we never doa never really had a bunch of problems with skinheads in canada but we man we sure had a lot of fights with them in the usa and in europe i don't know why that happened maybe we were on tour or who knows, right? So um, I'm not disputing what the other people are saying. I just, it didn't happen to me, right? Well, that's like, that's sort of another thing I've, uh, this is one of the reasons I love doing this show is just you hear so many different perspectives on different situations at the same time period. Like the other thing that comes up on the show that is always a different take on or, you know, varying takes on, I should say, is the violence at those Los Angeles shows and just sort of the influx of yeah. that stuff. Yeah, I, I, I got to agree uh, that, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of wild crowds. You know, we we're kind of like getting to be semi-veterans by that point. But the shows in L.A. were like out of control, like uh, the, um, oh, Fender's Ballroom in Long Beach or the Olympic Auditorium in uh, uh, central Los Angeles. Mm. And then the one, the place was like, all, or Orange County, Orange County, we played one show, the Cuckoo's Nest, that like, you know, all, all the all the main guys from that scene were there. The PA stopped working. They didn't care. We just kept playing and it was still one of the most nuts things that I've ever seen in my life, like climbing up the side of the wall. Yeah. And then uh, and San Diego was uh, also like extremely violent, too. But, you know, it's just down the road from uh, from Orange County. That's another thing that comes up a lot on the show is that actually like people from San Diego are like LA had nothing on the violence in, in that we had to deal with I, in San Diego. I, I, they're almost right. Like um, if they, let's say they're like uh, a and one a mm. and the Boston kind of be like, became like that a little bit later on. 
Yeah. Oh, really? If okay. you, yeah, Boston got pre-argentoy. I talked to my friend Springer, and we played this one show. It was like the venue was supposed to hold 75 people, and the guy sold about 200 tickets. So I think we played about one song. The ceiling was ripped out. The tables were all broken. The Boston police were on the way, and the place was, like, decimated. And then the, the owner tried to blame it all on DOA for playing so fast. <laughs> and the, the Boston police actually put the owner of the, I can't remember the club, but asked Springer or Al from SST Control, and uh, they actually took the owner away in cuffs, right, and let us go. They, the Boston police came up and talked to us, like, so do you have anything to do with this? You know, no, no, we're just Canadians. Oh, okay. The hell are you doing here? Anyway, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> you got to yeah, play no. the Canadian card. Canadian card works well. It definitely does. That's definitely yeah. when they're when they're shutting down the show in the U.S. You're just like, I'm just a Canadian. I have no idea. What's I'm just going Canadian. I I've, I've never seen this stuff before. Yeah, I have no idea what you're <laughs> talking about, sir. Uh, it's a great, it's a great thing. Yeah, uh, Joey, this has been phenomenal again and anytime you want to come back on this show you know that the door is always open but before you go can i ask you about one more band yeah uh, what was that tour with negazioni like i, I love that band and- oh those guys are great um um they we did a whole summer tour with them uh so i think we met them in minneapolis that was the first show so we have about 20 25 shows we became good friends and uh, it was great uh uh, so the the first venue, uh, the the guy did, they never opened up for sound check, right? So just the doors open. Okay, you guys load your shit in, right? Yeah. And uh, so we're sitting there, and, uh, and they went, "Hey, you guys know how to play soccer?" They said football, but we said, "Yeah, we play soccer." And uh, so we divided up. And after about ten minutes, it was like five nothing for them. So I went, okay, okay, this is wrong. And they're like a bunch of Canadians playing Italians, right? Like a this is not going to work out. So the next day we got on hockey sticks and we taught those guys how to play hockey. Right. So, well, sort of, right. So, <laughs> Cause we always, we always had a dozen hockey sticks with us. Right. And, it was a, and, uh, but they were great. It was like un, unbelievable, like great talented band. I remember tax, a uh, guitar player, a good buddy of mine. And, uh, Oh my God, it was a devastating, uh, towards the end of the tour. And, uh, his mother had been sick. And he got the word in the afternoon that his mother had died. Oh, my God. And we went, oh, my God. He had to go on stage in about two hours. And we said, you don't have to do the show. We'll still pay you guys and all that, right? And he yeah. says, no, I'm going to. And he got up and did the show. Yeah. Heavy. That would have been, yeah, too much. But I, I still see those guys. Uh, I, I've probably been to Italy, like, uh, minimum 15, 16 times. It's a really good spot for, for DOA. And they show up, and uh, we have a great time, and the communication's never lost. They made some great records, and they're like, uh, yeah, they're really uh, yeah, superb band, like a lot of the Italian hardcore bands were, right? Oh, yeah, in, in, in Talk Midas Action Equals Zero, you've got that flyer with you playing with that band Upside, who I love that 7-inch. Yeah, we did the tour, U.S. tour with uh, CCM. We took them all around the central states, and uh, um yeah, really uh, crazy, crazy hardcore scene, right? And, uh, hey, first time we went there, we played in uh, uh, Milan, and it was the last day of our first tour in 84 around Europe. 
And uh, we played uh, Leon Cavallo Social Central, which was this giant famous squat. And uh, they got enough money to pay us, which was like airplane tickets back to England. And there were about a thousand people there. And they just opened the gates and let everybody in. There's there 3,000 people at the show. And it was the first big hardcore show in Italy. And there was like, we we're on stage playing. And there's three separate giant pits always going at the same time in different <laughs> it was like I'd like out of control, right? You know, and we're going, whoa, okay, we gotta come back. Oh yeah, no, it's 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 amazing like how you know where this music takes and how you know everywhere it takes it takes differently. But Italy, yeah, it just it took it took and there's yeah, so yeah, many yeah. good bands. Yeah. And plus all the great food and coffee too, right? So it's, it might have something to do yeah. with it. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> uh, Joey, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, yeah. My pleasure. This is a great thing. Uh, you really know your stuff, and I really love talking to you. So let's shoot for six months, a year, whatever. Let's see uh, what the next chapter brings. And, uh, yeah, no, it's really fun. And, uh, um, yeah, uh, you know. Uh, when COVID's over, um, I'm all ready to start playing punk rock again. I haven't forgotten how, right? So, well, I, I, it's a dream to play with you guys one day. So we gotta, we gotta. Get yeah, that together. would that would be great. That would be great, right? So, yeah, I look forward to that too. Thank you, Joey, for returning to the show. And you heard right there, six months to a year, Joey's going to be back for a part three. <laughs> oh my gosh, a lot more to get to. A lot more to get to. Oh, that was fun. That was awesome. Okay, we got to keep the uh, we got to keep these part two vibes going, right? So, coming up later on this week on the show, another iconic front person from from the formative years of hardcore, Jello Biafra returns to turn out a punk. That's right. We we nerd out. Um, uh, it's, it's a fun one. I'm not, I, why am I going to give you some spoilers? Listen to it. That is coming up later on this week on the show. Uh, remember as always, black lives matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids and we need to help trans people protect themselves. Go out there, get informed, read about what people are dealing with in this world, you know, get, get involved, have empathy, uh, you know, just, just have empathy. You know, smash fascism and have empathy. That is, that's a slogan that I think we can all get behind. Um, and, uh, just make your own culture. You know, that's another slogan. I think we can all get behind. You start a band, start a fanzine in the words of Tony Erba, do, do whatever you need to do. Um, you don't have to share it with other people too. Just do it for yourself. It'll help mental health stuff. Meditating also helps. I still am, am going strong on this thing. Meditating, you know, it's only like five, 10 minutes a day. And really it, 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 has had a marked improvement on my life. Maybe it will yours too. Sign your organ order cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them and, and it helps someone else. So that's good, right? And that's it. I will see you next episode on this podcast. Oh, don't forget to check out Oil and Flowers with my friend Buddha Blaze and I uh, talking about cannabis and the uh, comings and goings of the industry. And uh, it's a fun time. Check out Oil and Flowers. Bye.